Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. Well, good evening, everyone. Merry Christmas. How many of you have already finished your Christmas shopping? (laughs) The video reminds us of just how busy it can be during the Christmas season. And the series title that we're in is Hark. As many of you know, Hark means to listen or to pay attention. And it's a reminder for us, you know, in the busyness of the holidays, to slow down and to pay attention to what God says. And because uh, and, it's easy in the busyness to forget the true meaning of Christmas. True? To help us with that, I want to invite you to do a quick little exercise. And that is, uh, if you would just try to think of one word to describe the meaning of Christmas. And go ahead and just brainstorm. What is one word that you would use to describe the meaning of Christmas? Got a word? Okay, now, if you would just turn to your neighbor and share what that word is. Okay, so we've got a few ideas out there. And uh, for those who feel brave enough, I want to invite you to share uh, what idea, what word came to your mind to describe the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, Just go ahead and call it out. And uh, we'll ask the tech team to put it up on the screen. What's that? Family. Family. Okay, family. Other other words. Redeemer. Redeemer. A little bit louder. Christ. I heard Christ and food. (laughs) Okay. Love. Love. What else? Spirit. Yes, spirit. Gift. Yes. Very good. Salvation. Salvation. Restoration. Good news. news. Hope. Any others? Confidence. Oh, humble. Something. I heard somebody over here. What was that? Was that birth? Okay, birth, good. A little louder. Savior. Okay, I have a thought that maybe some of you haven't thought of before. Did anybody think of the word warfare? Nobody raised their hand? Nobody thought of warfare? It's definitely not the traditional view of Christmas. But I invite you to consider Christmas in the context of warfare. It's kind of like celebrating Liberation Day. It's good to celebrate Guam's liberation. But the festivities themselves don't really bring attention to what really happened. Liberation is nice because we benefit. But it wasn't nice for the Marines who landed here. They paid a price. And Christmas is like that. It's nice for us. We put up the lights, we give gifts, we buy presents. But it wasn't nice for Jesus. It's nice for us because salvation is free. Somebody mentioned that, salvation. But it wasn't free for him. When Jesus landed here, he paid a price 
so that we could be free from the power and the penalty of sin. To better appreciate what he did for us, I'd like, to, I'd like us to consider warfare as the spiritual reality surrounding the birth of Jesus. Warfare as the spiritual reality surrounding the birth of Jesus. And it's, important, it's an important picture that is found in Scripture. If you haven't read it before, it's found in Revelation chapter 12. And I invite us to read it together. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who kept the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, as you know, Revelation has a lot of visual imagery and symbolism. And it starts off with the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars. And traditionally, many have believed that this was a reference to Mary. And if you look at church art way back in history, oftentimes you'll see uh, paintings of Mary with the sun in the background or prominent in the picture and the moon and the 12 stars around her head. And so this was the the artist way of trying to communicate what is written here in Revelation chapter 12. But rather than getting our translation or interpretation of Revelation from art, I suggest we let the Bible interpret itself. And so anytime you have a symbol and you want to understand what it means, it's important to go back to the first time that it's mentioned in Scripture. We've talked about this before. It's called the principle of first mention. Does anybody else know where this symbol was used in the Bible? If you were to do a little search using your Bible app, you'd find that it's referenced in Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, we read the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph had a dream. Do you remember what his dream was? His dream was that the moon... The sun, the moon, and the stars all bowed down to him. And his brothers 
were upset because their understanding of what he was saying was the, the sun represented his dad, the moon represented his mom, and it actually says 11 stars because he was the 12th brother. So the, the other 11 brothers bowed down to him. And so the symbol that's referenced here in Revelation chapter 12 is not really about Mary. It's about the nation of Israel. So in this picture, you have the father of Israel, the mother of Israel, and the 12 sons, which made up the 12 tribes, which made up the nation of Israel. And so Jesus, being a Jew, came out of the nation of Israel. The child was born from Israel. The rest of the passage speaks to the birth of Jesus, surrounded by warfare. And the passage is clearly consistent with Jesus' statement when he said, The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And so what does that warfare look like? There are many aspects to this warfare, but tonight I want to highlight just one. We read in Revelation 12 that Satan was defeated by God. The passage said he's furious because he knows his time is short. And Jesus said the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And so he's trying to destroy everything that represents God on the earth. And do you know what is the one thing that represents God the most? You and I. Satan is trying to destroy the image of God in you and I. And so the battle that we're talking about is really a battle related to our identity. The battle is all about who you are. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about yourself? Just in the privacy of your heart, how would you answer that question? And for many people, the answer to that question reveals that the battle is real. Here's an idea that perhaps you haven't thought of before. There are elements in society that the enemy that Satan is using to wage war on your identity, on your self-image, how you think and feel about yourself. And tonight, I want to highlight two of them. The first is our education system. In our public school, in our public education system, it teaches evolution. Now, if you really want to get into it, there are various kinds of evolution. But the type that's taught in the public schools is atheistic evolution, meaning a process that occurs without God. That's commonly taught in our public school system. And so it's the idea that there isn't a creator, but you and I came into existence by happenstance. It was random chance that we came into existence. The difficulty with that philosophy is that if you and I are an accident, then it undermines any kind of ultimate purpose. It undermines the, any idea of that there is a reason and that there's a purpose that you are here. If there is a purpose and a reason, that's very different from you just being an accident. This teaching erodes your identity because it implies you have no ultimate purpose, that you have no destiny. This system of belief says that you have no intrinsic value. In other words, you have no inherent value, and if you do have any value, it's because you have to earn it. You have to contribute something to society, to your family, to your friends, in order to be valued. You have to perform. And if we follow that kind of thinking... We can get trapped into the thinking that if I'm not successful, then I'm not valued. If I'm not a success in this world, 
then I don't have as much value as somebody else who does. And do you see how that kind of thinking can undermine how you feel about yourself? So that's the first element. It's a teaching and an influence that has become worldwide. The second element is this. It's something that has become an epidemic in society. We've been through two world wars. During World War I and World War II, young men went off to war. And if, they, and if they survived, when they came back, many felt the need to catch up in the areas of their education and their career. And so many got busy with life and having to work hard in order to catch up with their counterparts, women and maybe other men who didn't go to war. And so being so busy in life, what happened is many didn't have the focus on the home. They were focused on their career, focused on their education, getting busy, trying to catch up in life. To add on top of that came the Industrial Revolution. And so it was this idea that there became specialization in occupations, and so people went to work in factories. And it was the first time that men no longer worked at home. They moved away from the home in order to go to work. And so this further drew men away from the family. And so what you had was fathers who were absent. And if they were present, if they came home from work every day, maybe they were tired, maybe they're preoccupied about all the drama and the politics happening at work. And so it's a little difficult to focus on the needs at home. You know, if you only have five units of energy, you need to save one of those for when you come home. (laughs) I remember when I used to be a workaholic as a younger person, sometimes my kids would say, Dad, tell us a story at bedtime. And... You know, they they knew I was falling asleep when my story no longer made sense. It became incoherent. (laughs) Like, Dad, are you awake? (laughs) So all of this resulted in fathers who were absent either physically or emotionally. And this did a number on the family and the relationship between the fathers and the children. You know, most of the animal kingdom, they have this thing that we call instinct. Birds, they know how to migrate. They know when and how to fly south at the right time of the year. Salmon, they can find their birthplace without a GPS. Okay, but we humans have to be taught how to love. And by the way, that's one of the primary roles of a father, is to love. And so when fathers are away from the home and that picture is not formed for the kids, if they don't see the role model, then something gets lost in the generation. And once that happens to an entire generation, remember there's two world wars. So it wasn't just some isolated incident in one part of the globe. I mean, it was countries all over the globe that were going through this experience. And so there were entire communities across continents that were experiencing this dynamic that we're talking about. And so once it happens in one generation, a child grows up and has an absent father and doesn't see what the father's heart and what a father's love looks like, then he has a blank picture as he goes into adulthood. He grows up with his kids and his wife, but now he's missing part of the picture. How do I do this thing called fatherhood? And so then, once it happens in a generation, then the cycle perpetuates itself. Generation after generation. And so we have this epidemic of fatherlessness in the world today. 
sociologist and psychologist who do studies at places like DYA, our Department of Youth Affairs, where we have a correctional facility for minors, or for DOC, where we have it for adults. One of the blaring common denominators for the men in these facilities is absent fathers. This is very significant because the role of the father is to call children to life. The role of the father is to see who their children are, to see who they are, to see how God made them, and to tell them who they are. Now, if we don't do this, the result is children who feel insecure and who lack confidence. They don't know who they are. These children grow up to be adults who also are insecure and lack confidence. When fathers are absent physically or emotionally, children don't feel secure and confident. And secondly, children become less aware of the presence of God. And they become less aware of the activity of God around them. And the reason for this is children develop a view of God based on their experience with their father. So, for example, if a father is absent or uninvolved, that child will grow up and think God is absent or uninvolved. Not knowing God's presence and not feeling known by their earthly father, children feel unimportant or unwanted. And so many of us grew up without a father, either physically or maybe emotionally absent. And if this describes you, just hang in there for a while. I promise you there's hope in this message. Jacob was the father, was a father who called each one of his sons and he described their uniqueness. He told them who they are and he called them out in a good way. You know, it's not necessarily a, a mystical thing that a father calls a child to life. It's, it's really quite simple. It's a matter of being with them and seeing who they are, seeing who God made them to be, simply identifying that and then expressing it to your children to help them see themselves. Oftentimes we need a mirror, don't we? You ever have this quirky behavior and you just think it's normal until somebody mimics you and does it back? And you're like, oh, is that what I look like? (laughs) It also works in the positive. Sometimes we are our own worst judge and we're critical of ourselves, but you need somebody to be able to reflect back to you those qualities that represent the image of God to go, oh, yeah, that's who I am. You know, when my kids were little, um, I told Terry one day, I said, Tara's going to be the swimmer and Nicole's going to be the basketball player. She's like, how do you know that? I go, I can see it in them. You know, and sure enough, uh, Tara, when she was 14 years old, she went to represent Guam in the mini South Pacific Games in Palau, came back with a medal. No, three medals, right? And Nicole, when she was a freshman in high school, she was on the varsity basketball team, which is a very rare thing. I mean, she almost couldn't believe it. She'd be going through practice, and we'd go, who are you practicing with? She goes, I'm practicing with the varsity team. Well, are you, are you on varsity? She's like, I don't know. We had to wait till the first game to see what, what game she played in. <laughs> and so it's the father's role to see these things in their kids and to identify it and to speak it out to them and help them see who they are. Just to help you see how powerful this can be, there are many Old Testament figures that we view as heroes of the faith. Uh, For example, Elijah, Isaiah, Moses, Noah, Abraham. My favorite is King David. King David, the greatest warrior who ever lived. 
What gave him so much courage as a teenager to be able to face Goliath? You know, it wasn't like the movie Matrix, you know, where he could download the app and all of a sudden he had the skill of martial arts. You know, there was no seminar, there was no class, no, no, no app or anything for fighting giants. You know, so what made him so courageous? And the secret is something actually very simple, yet very powerful. David was courageous for the simple reason that he had a father. The most secure people are those who are known by their dads. David was courageous because he had a father. And most importantly, David was known by his heavenly father. The prophet Samuel came to David and speaking on God's behalf, Samuel proclaimed David's destiny out loud. God told him who he was. Samuel anointed him with oil, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, the Spirit of the Father, rushed on him from that time forward. David had an intimate relationship with his Heavenly Father. He was a worshiper. He wrote most of the Psalms, which are worship songs. It was in the confidence of knowing God and knowing that he was known by God that David was able to defeat Goliath. The Bible says those who know their God will do great exploits. The enemy doesn't want, to, doesn't want us to be known by our fathers. He doesn't want us to know our heavenly father because he knows if we do, we will have courage and we will do great things for God. Through the education system, the teaching of evolution, and the attack on fatherhood, the enemy tries to make us feel like we're not important. But God says, you are very important. I've talked about Christmas in the context of warfare and what that warfare looks like in hopes that as we read the Christmas story, we can better appreciate what Jesus did for us. Life is a jungle, and Jesus came here to give you a message. And the message is simply this. You're important. You're very important. Jesus came to say, that you're important. He came to make you feel secure. He came to encourage you. He came to say, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I can't tell you how many times in the experience of prayer ministry that Terry and I have helped people go to places of trauma in their lives. And all we did was ask Jesus to come and meet them in that place of hurt and pain. And I tell you, I've heard some of the worst stories on the planet. And it doesn't matter how bad it is. The moment they experience God in the presence of their pain, he is enough. Every single time. I'm amazed at how simple it is that they will just experience God in those places where there's hurt and pain. He brings healing. He is enough. He came to encourage you. He came to say, don't be afraid, I'm with you. Despite what your family life may have been, God is here to reparent you. He's here to make you the person that he designed you to be. And so it's in this context of warfare that I wanted to kind of reframe the Christmas story in a non-traditional view as we go back now and look at Luke chapter 2, a story very familiar with us to us. We read about it every year around Christmas season. But I want to give us maybe a new lens to be able to view this passage from Luke chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, 
keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swathing cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We'll stop there. I want you to imagine the situation of shepherds in a field. And just think about the different people in society and all the different levels of success that that we have in mind. And just imagine people who were of not much account as far as society was concerned. You know, shepherds, they were not the wealthy intelligentsia of their day. You know, if they're in our pop culture You know, if there was a video that was shown on YouTube about their lifestyle, it would not get a million hits. Okay, it would not be trending now. The fact that God revealed himself and revealed his plan to men such as these, what does that say? God is not concerned about how much money you have. God is not concerned about your status. He's not concerned about your popularity. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. He's not concerned about whether or not you have a house. Every single one of you are important for the simple reason that he made you. He thought about you. He wanted you. And he created you. Jeremiah 1.5 says, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jesus said, call no one father, for you have only one father who is in heaven. You know, we have earthly parents, but God just used them as a tool to bring us into existence. There is only one person who created you, and he thought about you before you existed, and he wanted you, and he brought you into this world, and he gave you this amazing gift of life. An amazing gift of life. As your father... He wants to tell you who you are. Terry and I had an amazing experience when we were at the World Conference recently in South Africa. They had something called a prophetic presbytery. That's a gathering where the elders get together and they pray over you to listen to the heart of God and then to speak that out to you, to help you experience God. We do that sometimes here in our church as well. It's an amazing thing when God speaks to you. And so Terry and I went together as a couple, and there were two other guys who were going to pray for us. We didn't know them from Adam, never met them before. One, I think, was from South Africa. The other was from the Philippines. And I expected them to say something about our future, you know, what we would be doing. And that's typically what has happened for me in the past. I remember one of the first people to prophesy over Terry and I Uh, when it used to be Gibson's, not GPO, and they had King's Restaurant there, we met a guy who was a prophet from Australia. And he told us that we would be traveling frequently in our lifetime. And in those days, we were poor. I mean, we had this tiny little apartment. And I drove this old Guam bomb of a car. And we didn't make much. And I was just trying to climb ourselves out of debt. And I was like, travel the world? Really? How is that going to happen? 
But you know, don't question God. <laughs> because God has brought that to pass as we look back over the decades. When we were in South Africa, uh, this person had a different kind of prophetic word for Terry and I. He began to describe who we are. He doesn't know us from Adam. He said, Mark, you're a serious kind of guy. And, uh, and for those of you who know me, that's so true. I need, I need to learn how to lighten up. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not Elmore and I'm not Andy. <laughs> Lord knows I need these guys on my team. <laughs> and he said, but you get so focused. And he said, you really need Terry because she's very lighthearted. And she likes to giggle and she likes to laugh. And, and he said so many other things about who she is and how we complement each other and how I need her to bring that lightheartedness into my life. And he went on to describe other things, not just about who we were as individuals, but how we interacted with each other as a couple and the effect that that had in our working together. I was just amazed because this guy does not know us. And I walked away from that. The takeaway from me was this. God knows me. God knows us. God knows who we are. And even the intricate interactions that happen between husband and wife, God sees us as one and he knows all of that. It's amazing. And so, regardless of what happened in our home life, God wants to reparent us. And it's important for us to be involved in the family of the church because it's, God uses people to speak to us. We get hurt in relationships. We also get healed in relationships. And God wants to use the church to be like a hospital at times that brings healing. And as God reparents us, It's amazing how he can call us out into our identity. You know, the reason I could call out my kids and their identity is because those things that I could see in them were things that I was familiar with. I love to swim. I love to play basketball. So when I saw that skill set in them, I, I recognized it instantly, automatic. But things that I'm not aware of, things that I have no clue about, like, say, music, I didn't recognize. My younger daughter, she led worship. Where's Nicole? She led worship here tonight, did a beautiful job. But she would sing day and night in our home. So much so that her older sister would say, Nicole, would you stop singing? (laughs) But that was her heart. But as much as she did that, as much as that talent, that gifting was there, I didn't realize the potential of it. I almost took, I just kind of took it for granted. Oh yeah, she likes to sing. And so the point is this. You can recognize things that you're skilled in. But there are some things that you don't recognize. But the thing about God is he knows everything. He knows every skill, every talent, every gift that he's given you, and he recognizes all of it, even if you don't see it yet. He sees it in you, and he wants to call it out. He wants to call you out in the way that he made you in your identity. I'm going to turn a corner as we come to a close. You know, earlier I talked about Liberation Day as something we should, we should celebrate. But the festivities themselves don't really reveal what actually happened here during that time period. You know, the Marines may have come to Guam out of patriotism. Or maybe they had family members who died in Pearl Harbor. Maybe some had a deep sense of justice. It's different for everybody. Maybe some were afraid that if they didn't do something, the enemy would invade even further than Guam and Hawaii. Maybe they felt threatened. But I tell you this, when Jesus landed on earth, it wasn't because he was trying to keep the enemy at bay, hoping that he would protect his home in heaven. 
There's only one reason that he came here. The reason that he came here is because you're important. That's the message of Christmas. As 2016 comes to a close, I want to invite you to have hope. Not hope in a better future. Not hope in our leaders after this recent election. Not hope in what you know or what you can do. But I encourage you to have hope in Jesus himself because he is with you. He says that you're important. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing love. My God, I thank you that you're so tuned in to who we are. Lord, you desire that we experience you so that we could experience the fullness of all that you designed us to be. Lord, for you to call it out and to bring it to life. Father, we come here tonight before you just in the presence of your spirit and ask you to speak to us. And if you would, in the silence of your heart, in the privacy of your mind, Take a moment and just say, God, what is it that you're trying to say to me? Father, what is it that you want me to take away from the message of Christmas? And I want to give you a moment just to reflect and to listen. Our series is Hark, which means to listen and to hear what it is that God is saying to you. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in our hearts here tonight. Lord, thank you for this evening that we could take time out and slow down from the busyness of the holidays to stop and listen. Lord, I thank you for how you're speaking. Father, I thank you for what you're doing. And I ask that you would complete the good work that you began in each one of us. Lord, thank you for this special season that we can celebrate that time that you interrupted human history and, Lord, changed humanity. Lord, brought us to this place of experiencing you. Whatever it is that God is saying to you, I want to give you an opportunity just to respond to him and say yes to him. While you're thinking about that, I want to address another segment in our room here tonight. Perhaps there are some of you, as you're listening to me talk about experiencing God, that this is something that's been resonating in your heart. And tonight you're here because you're searching. You too desire to experience God. And if you've never made a choice, a conscious choice, to open up your life to Him and invite Him to come into your life, 
I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. It's very simple, really. It's just a matter of making a decision. And if that sounds like a decision that you'd like to make, if you'd like to open up your heart and your mind and invite him to be in your life, I want to give you an opportunity to express that decision here tonight. The way we're going to do that is just by talking to God. That's what we call prayer. If I'm going to pray out loud, I invite you just to hitchhike on my words. But before we do that, I'd like to know who I'm praying with. Let's pray. God, on this Christmas Eve, I'm standing here, sitting here, making a decision. And I'm saying yes. I'm saying yes to you. I'm choosing to open up to you. And I invite you to be in my life. I invite you to be a part of who I am and what I do. And God, I ask that you would show me how to do this thing called life. Lord, it's been difficult on my own and I recognize something is missing and I realize that it's you. And so I'm here now saying yes. God, I ask you to forgive me for the things I've done that have hurt people and hurt myself. And most of all, my relationship with you, I ask you to forgive me. I thank you for Jesus coming to earth for a purpose, to die in my place and to forgive me. God, tonight I ask you to forgive me. Would you just cover me with your forgiveness, with your grace, and wash away the guilt? And if you're praying this prayer with me right now, I just invite you to literally receive his love and forgiveness, which is for you. And let it come in and let him renew your heart, renew your life, renew your mind. Let him transform you to be the person he designed you to be. Let him be your father. Let him parent you. Let him give you a new life. Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming into my life. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. And I ask that you would show yourself to me and make me the kind of person you want me to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.